uh, here at City Light, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. So when the Bible is open and taught, we believe God speaks to us. So we're going uh, to hear God speak to us through the book of Daniel, chapter 1, right now. It says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and then of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, uh, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So why would you endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen uh, that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is the word of God. Hey guys, uh, great to be with you again today, um, and if you join us online, um, good to see you, can't really see you, but good to have you. Um, and I just want to say, I really missed you guys last week as we had the uh, week off from our public gatherings to do an hour of being still with God, and um, I don't know how you found that, I found that really, really just refreshing. I think a lot of people I've spoken to uh, found it the same, I, I, I think coming out of last weekend... Um, just feeling, just feeling good, just feeling calm. Hard to know how much of that also was just we had great weather and daylight savings means that you get more sun in the afternoon as well. But um, I think at least at least part of it was was spending that time with God. And so I just want to say, if you um, things got a bit away from you last weekend and you just didn't do it, um, no guilt, no shame. Like we don't know if you've done it or not. But I just encourage you for for your own for your own sake and to to give it a try um, and just see if God has something to say to you. Um, that, that God might be wanting to press something on your heart. Um, that as a church, we can be together listening to God. So I'd encourage you to do that if you haven't. Um, and like Gav said, those, those daily reading books, if you, if you read through those over the next seven weeks, which is how long we're going to be in the book of Daniel, you'll have read the, the readings are the whole of the book of Daniel, the whole book of 1 Peter, and I think it's like 12 to 14 Psalms. And so each, it's kind of spread out, so you might do Monday, a bit of Daniel, Tuesday, a bit of 1 Peter, Wednesday, a Psalm, and so on. So um, I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, I think it's going to be an enjoyable and, and helpful way to, to be 
taking some scripture every day. So um, jump on that tomorrow. Maybe you want to share that with your, with your small groups and that kind of thing as well. Like Gav said, we're jumping in now to uh, uh, the book of Daniel, and we're calling it In Babylon, which, like, like Gav said, really is an, an exploration of what it is to, to live in a, a foreign and, and potentially even hostile culture. Uh, it's been a while, obviously, since um, anyone here has been able to kind of travel uh, uh, abroad to a foreign place. But if you've been overseas, um, what I'm about to describe might be something that you can relate to. Um, if you've been overseas, you've probably been to a place that's quite different. Maybe that's even been your experience of Australia, depending on how long you've been here. Um, we've, we've potentially gone to a place where, where the language is different. As you walk through the streets, um, the signs, if they're written in other languages, are, are, are impossible for you to read. Where there, there might be smells that are different, sounds, experiences that were completely different to what you know from home. But it, you may have, like me, had, had times when you've been overseas where just for a moment you forget where you are. So you might be somewhere like you know, in Southeast Asia and you've decided you want a bit of Maccas or you've had like a bit of a hankering for the dirty bird so you've walked into a KFC with your partner or your friends who you're travelling with and you've sat down for a meal and for 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour, you've just forgotten where you were. Um, you're kind of surrounded by things that are familiar. You feel like you're kind of at home and it's not until you step back out onto the street that it kind of hits you that you're in a completely different place. Or you maybe even had the experience where you've you know, tried to speak to someone uh, in English without even thinking uh, and just forgetting for a moment that they don't even speak the same language as you. Um, I reckon an experience similar to this would probably be pretty common to every Christian living here in Sydney. Um, we can forget where you really are. I, f- I feel at home in Sydney. I've lived here my whole life. Um, probably I feel a little bit too at home. I think there are even times when I feel like it's my city. Like if I'm riding my bike through the inner west and a, and a car cuts me off, I think sometimes my frustration extends beyond that's just annoying to how dare you behave like that on my road. Like, this is my city. I should be able to enjoy it. It should be mine. And so, so Sydney feels like home, and I feel like it always will. But like me, you may have had an experience where you've been going through your day, and there's been something that's just kind of startled you into the realization that you're not really at home, that you're different, that you're actually not the same as the culture around you. Maybe even happened this morning if you went and got a coffee on your way to church. You may have uh, stepped into the coffee shop um, and if it wasn't too busy, you know, have the barista say to you, kind of, what are you up to today? And then that feeling would have come into your, you know, the pits of your stomach where you kind of uh, have to quickly decide whether you're going to say you're going to church, whether you're going to kind of slide out of it somehow because you know that answering the question what are you doing today by saying going to church is weird. That is not, you'd be the only one saying that to the barista that morning. That is just not what most people are doing in Sydney today. Or you'll be out for, for dinner with some friends or at some after work drinks and you'll notice that the conversation is sliding into some topics which are, which are a little bit frightening to you. The, the, maybe the, the conversation turns to a conversation of sexuality or of gender or maybe even kind of um, some, some politics when someone's talking about Trump and how evangelical Christians have elected him. And suddenly you kind of feel a bit shy because you realize that if someone asks you what you think, what you might say might be uncomfortable. Uh, or that, that maybe you'll just be sitting there minding your own business and then someone else will just at the table start kind of just kind of raging on Christianity or, or religion. Um, there's a tension that comes with trying to follow Jesus in Sydney when most people aren't on about that. There's something alienating about being a Christian. Um, to come face to face with the fact that we are a min- minority. And you, you would know this tension, I imagine, if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus... Um, 
maybe you can imagine that that would be a pretty unpleasant part of being a follower of Jesus. That might even be something that's like, I, I don't really think I'm up for being that different to everyone else. And so the question we're going to be looking at, not just this week, but over this series, is how do we live out this tension? How do we live as people who are, who are different, who are foreigners, who are exiles? Um, and really, we want to get to the po- point of saying, not just how do we survive in this tension, but how can we thrive? How can we actually live wholeheartedly and confidently uh, through this tension? And so today we're going to be going through that story that, Jez, uh, that Gav just read for us. Gav's been away for a while, I've been autopilot there. Um, uh, that Gav just read to us, looking at, looking at this story, but also I think we're going to be setting ourselves up to making sense of the rest of the book. Uh, we're going to be introduced to really the key characters. Um, and namely, we're going to be meeting the character of Daniel. We're also going to be meeting the character of Babylon, which isn't a, a human character, but really is the, is the character that drives the conflict throughout this whole story. It's really Daniel versus Babylon. And so we're going to kind of walk through that now and, and, and pick some things out. So the book of Daniel starts where this story um, picks up. It's really part of a bigger story. The Old Testament to so the first half of the Bible spans um, uh, thousands of years. And where the book of Daniel starts very near the end of the Old Testament, it's 587 B.C., And at this point in history, the nation of Israel has enjoyed hundreds of years of relative success. By God's provision, they've gone from being a nation of slaves uh, in Egypt to being a nation of desert wanderers to actually establishing a land for themselves uh, in Canaan, which they rebranded as Israel. Um, And they've enjoyed, at this point, a few hundred years of relative peace and prosperity, experiencing good favor with the surrounding nations. Um, but in this prosperity, the people of Israel, they forgot what God had done for them. They forgot the story that, that kind of marked them as people who had been rescued from slavery. They, they started neglecting their God and worshipping gods of the nations around them. And they started, uh, even in the day-to-day, they, they'd stopped caring for the poor and the weak. They were ignoring the widows and the orphans in their midst. And so God warned them through prophets over a period of decades to kind of get back on track to remember who they were, to remember who God was, and to live out under his rule. And they didn't. And so the book of Daniel starts with this. In verse 1 it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So Babylon, which at the time was the most powerful empire in the world, defeats Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the people of Judah, which is part of Israel. And rather than just wiping out the population in a mass genocide, Babylon's strategy is to instead take the people back to their homeland in Babylon and really amalgamate them into into Babylonian life, to actually kind of profit off them and, and enable these people to actually help grow and expand the influence and the range of the empire. And that's what they do with, with um, the key characters of this story. So we'll read on in verse 3. It says, that The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So we see this strategy of bringing people in played out here. So they've, they've picked out the best of the best, 
these what would have been young boys, maybe early teenagers, who'd already had a history back home of getting good education, being taught good manners, being looked after, healthy and strong, to bring them in to serve the king. But the goal of Babylon isn't to have uh, just kind of good Israelites living in Babylon. Their goal is to make them Babylonian. And there's motivation for these, um, for these young men who have been taken in to go along with this. I mean, these are actually the fortunate ones. Not every exile from Jerusalem got an opportunity to live in the palace and serve the king and have a good, relatively comfortable life and maybe even to grow in power and influence. So there's a motivation for them to just go along with this process. To say, look, you know, this is our lot, but let's make the most of it and let's, you know, let's get on board with the king. The king of Babylon was the most powerful person in the world at the time. Um, so there was an opportunity to show allegiance to him and actually grow in, in power and influence. And that's what the, the, this is a question of for these guys. It's a question of allegiance. Babylon is putting them through a re-education program to gain their allegiance for Babylon. And this is the pathway of Daniel and his three friends who are the focus of the book. We, we meet them in the next verse, which says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, to us, this... You know, this is just like a pretty random uh, renaming process. In the, you know, people got one random confusing name, they get given another random confusing name. Except for Daniel, you've got to feel sorry for Daniel. He had the best name to begin with, like Daniel's a nice, easy name. And he gets replaced with Belteshazzar, which um, really doesn't have any ring to it whatsoever, does it? Um, so you feel a bit bad for him, but for the others, who really minds? So for, for, when we read this, we just see it's, it's this jazzing up of the names. But what we kind of miss is that there's something actually. Um, quite, quite significant going on in this process. Um, it, it's kind of lost on us, but these four Israelites, their names were rooted in their identity. So um, their names all had some kind of built-in part which kind of t- spoke of them as people who worship Yahweh, which is the personal name for their God, the God of Israel. And so I've, I've kind of got them up for you. So Daniel uh, means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yah, so Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael is who is what God is. Azariah is Yahweh has helped. And so the names that they're given instead um, basically label them as worshippers of these Babylonian gods. Babylon was a, um, had a whole bunch of gods. And so Belteshazzar means Bel, one of their gods, will protect. Shadrach means inspired of a coup. Meshach means belonging to Aku, and Abednego means servant of Nego. So what's going on here is actually really something that's quite sinister. Um, it's, it's taking away something that is core to their identity and trying to you know, replace it with something else. In, in our country, which has a dark history of, trying to, of a, a dominant power trying to erase the culture and the ancestry of our indigenous people, I think we, you know, if you've even just been to school in Australia, would have some knowledge and this isn't a neutral thing that's taking place. This is the use of power to, to remove culture, to remove identity, and to try to bring into a new culture and a new empire. It's an empire that believes it's superior, that, that the beliefs of these Israelites are inferior, and so what it wants to do is eliminate anything that just doesn't conform. This is our first glimpse of what Babylon is like. It is not a 
tolerant society. It is a society that has no place for the worship of the God of the Bible. And it's going to be a story as we look into the following chapters of how again and again and again this empire Babylon will go to any length to coerce and control and remove the worship of God from these exiles as they seek to make their life in Babylon. Now the reason that we're calling this series in Babylon isn't just because it's you know, the, the geographical location where this book is set, but in the New Testament, long after the, the Babylonian empire has fallen, Babylon is used as like an archetype or, or a symbol to describe any human institution that demands allegiance over Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That Babylon isn't unique as a culture that seeks to undermine faith in God, but really, in every human culture, in, in some big ways and in small, there are efforts that seek to diminish faith of people that try to trust in God. That's why we're looking at the book of Daniel this many years later. Not, not just because Daniel finds himself in Babylon, but because you and I find ourselves in Babylon. If you're following Jesus in Australia in 2020, you're following Jesus in a culture that it wants to actually stop you doing that. Now, don't mishear that as me saying, you know, like everything in Australian culture is bad or that every person who's an offer of Jesus has like a personal kind of, you know, vendetta against Christians and the church or anything like that. Um, to think of it in that black and white terms is obviously an error that the church has fallen into before. And you can think of those stereotypes of, you know, Christians that say like, you know, everything outside of the church is evil. So dancing, movies, secular schools, universities, they're all kind of to be feared and kept at arm's length. And the, and the only safe life is to kind of live in the church, send your kids to Christian school, uh, have them watch Veggie Tales, listen to Hillsong, uh, don't dress in clothes with brands on them, unless it's like you know a shirt you got at the Christian convention in 2011. Um, but my guess is, if you've made City Light your home, that's probably um, that's probably a stereotype you've rejected, because you know. As a church, we acknowledge that there is good in culture, there is good in music, there is uh, good in education and in art, and there's benefit to be had from engaging and living in culture. Both benefit for us, benefit from the culture around. But the fact that culture isn't all bad is not the same as saying it's neutral. Um, We don't live in a world that is neutral towards Christianity and towards faith and towards following Jesus. There is so much good in culture. There is so much beauty and, and just goodness around. But there is an underlying subtle bent away from following Jesus. It's an, it's an undercurrent that, that, that just subtly would want to have us frame our identities and allegiance to anything other than Jesus. And in Australia, that's obviously not like a loud thing of, of, of culture saying, you know, stop following Jesus or I'll kill you. Um, which is, that is the case in parts of the world. But but more, it's, it's the soft, inviting tone that says, you know, work hard, prosper, make money. You don't need to set aside a time aside for a quiet time. It'll hold you back and you'll get less done. You don't need to be committed to a community. Like, so maybe just look out for yourself a little bit more. Do what suits you because I think you'll find that's the good life. It's the, it's the, the soft voice that says, you know, the Bible isn't really true. I mean, how can it be? It's quite old, and we've known for a while there's all kind of weird, messed up stuff in it. And I mean, how really can we know anything anyway? Um, Don't base your life on something so obscure as that. Christianity is a bit silly when it comes down to it. You don't want to be stupid, do you? You don't even know 
what to think about anything. You know what? Don't even think about it. Just put on Netflix. There's a new show about an octopus or a terrorist or a group of friends in New York. Like Whatever you like, there'll be something for you. And while you're at it, just have another drink. You haven't been to church in a few weeks? Like That's okay. It's, you know, or it's months, is it? Or I guess it is COVID. And you haven't been reading your Bible, but that's too hard anyway. And so what if you haven't had time or energy to love the poor? That's okay. You might not even need Christianity after all. Most people don't bother with this Christian stuff. You can just get a house, get a car. It's easier that way. Fit in. Think like us. Be like us. Love what we love. Hate what we hate. And then you won't feel out of step. You won't feel the tension anymore. You'll belong. So just let go and go with the flow. Have you heard that voice? Not necessarily explicitly, but as the, as the undercurrent of our culture. This soft, inviting, more than a threat. That's what Daniel and his friends are experiencing here. They say, Eat the king's food. Drink the king's wine. There's a job for you in the palace. You can be rich. You can be powerful. You can be a Babylonian. Don't worry about that name that your parents gave you, about Yahweh being a god. We'll give you a new name, a strong name, a Babylonian name, a name that's respected here. So learn our stories. Think like us. Be like us. Be Babylonian. Last week, I got to go to the beach for the first time this season, and I, I, I love the beach. Um, very happy place for me. Um, and so I was up on the Central Coast, and I went for a swim kind of out uh, from the beach to this kind of rocky, rocky point at, at, at the beach I was at. And the thought came into my head, as it does in the first swim of every year, of sharks. The moment I'm out kind of more than like 10 metres from the shore and you can't see the ground anymore, the, the very first, like I, without fail, sharks, it's, it's one of my greatest fears. Um, I try to like just ignore it and keep swimming anyway, but, but, but they're terrifying. Um, they're beady little eyes, they're sharp teeth, they're leathery skin. I hate everything about them. Um, they're, they're, just, they're just terrifying. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, maybe you're scared of sharks as well. We can talk about that, talk about that later. But that's the kind of most obvious kind of fear I've got in the water. But the reality is, sharks aren't the biggest killer in Australian beaches. It's not the most dangerous thing, and not the biggest thing you need to worry about when swimming in the Australian Ocean. Um, it's also not box jellyfish. I was talking to Mike this morning. He got stung by a box jellyfish. That is a great story, so everyone should go ask him about that later on. But it's not box jellyfish either. The, um, the, the biggest danger at the beach... Um, which I think many people know, is, is rips. Not the big, obvious, scary, in-your-face shark, but the invisible, undetectable rip that you can be swimming in happily before realizing that you've moved far beyond where you feel safe, far beyond where you are safe, out into deeper water. It's rips that are the biggest killer in, in, in the ocean every year as, as people unknowingly get dragged out to sea and drown. Over the last seven years of City Light, we've had a bunch of people through these doors. You know, seriously, like I think hundreds at this point that have, that have come and gone, and many have gone on and you know, are following Jesus all around Australia or other parts of Sydney. But there have been a significant, I'd say now, number of people that have made this place home over the years who now wouldn't call themselves a follower of Jesus. Um, and of those people, it is very, very rare that their story is that they've had a... a, a concrete decision where they said, look, I've read these four books, I've considered the arguments, I've listened to some podcasts, and I'm making a conscious decision to renounce my faith. I'm no longer a Christian. 
that, that's very, very, very rare. The, the story that I feel like I, and maybe you've seen again and again and again, is the slow allure of our culture. A gradual eroding. A step-by-step, slow and steady walk away from Jesus. Walking towards the attractive offers of this world. That's the strategy of Babylon. That's the strategy of, of Sydney. So the question as we look in the story is, how is it that these Israelite boys, maybe 13, 14 years old, are going to resist the allure of the greatest empire to have ever existed? Well, I'd say this next verse shows us our first glimpse of Daniel. We've seen what Babylon is like. We're going to now see what Daniel is like, which sets him up for the rest of the book. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Daniel decides he's not going to go with the flow. He's going to draw a line in the sand. He's not going to kick up a big stink about it, but he says, I'm not going to take the bait. And it's hard to know exactly what's driving this. Like it may be that the food wasn't kosher, so there's some food that you couldn't eat as Israelites, but there's no prohibition against wine. But for whatever reason, Daniel's conscience says, this is not right to do. This is, this is not okay just to go along with what this culture, what this empire is asking of me. And so rather than just silencing that conscience that he feels, he stands firm, stands firm. And so the story goes on. Now, God had caused caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they all looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and, they were to drink, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So we see that they stand firm and they, and they maintain that. That's the, they, want, they, they, they basically get away with it. They can continue to do what they know is right and to eat just eat veggies and, and drink water. And so the question is, what's the point of this story? Um, I'm kind of bookmarking it in my Bible, so when my son River's a bit older and he doesn't want to eat his broccoli, that's what we're going to be reading as a family. Uh, vegetables are the way to go. Um, or is it a guide to weight loss? Like if you Google Daniel Fast, you'll see so many websites kind of setting up this kind of method as a way of um, losing weight. And by all means, have a crack. Ten days, water and veggies. Like, I needed a bit of a spring health kick, so I'll, even, I'll do it with you. Um, it's probably really hard, but, you know, we can have a go at that. But um, that's not the point of the story either. Why is this account of eating vegetables uh, in the Bible? Why is it in, in a book that, you know, spoiler alert, in, in chapters to follow, there's way more exciting stuff. We've got people getting thrown into fire, Daniel getting in, chucked into a cave full of lions. We've got a king that goes crazy and insane and crawls along the ground like an animal. There's psychedelic dreams coming up. Um, plenty of pretty exciting things. And here we got some uh, teenagers eating vegetables. Um, and that's the week I got to preach on. Um, so here's, here's what it's about. Um, it starts in this really subtle way, in really the small things. So I think it's trying to set up from the beginning to show that, that faithfulness starts with the small things. I reckon most of us would like to think that... Um, or, you know, would hope that if push came to shove, someone held a gun to our head and said, you know, 
renounce Jesus, that we would maybe in that moment have the guts to say, look, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not going to renounce Christ my Lord. Do what you will. Now, whether or not we would is another story, but I think we like to think that maybe we could muster up that, that faith in the big moment. I reckon, whatever you think of that one, I reckon all of us would say that if we, you know, won, won the lottery and got $20 million, that each and every one of us, we would be faithful with that and we'd, we'd wouldn't go out and buy a string of Lamborghinis, but we would give that to some, to some good cause. That when the need for great faithfulness arises, that we would rise to, the, rise to the charge. That if we were alive in Nazi Germany, that we'd be the kind of people that at our own risk would kind of give um, safe, safe harbour to Jewish people. We, we like to think that when the moment is there, that we will be faithful. But Daniel is a person of integrity, which means he's not just faithful in the big, obvious, in-your-face things, but he's faithful in the small things. In the stuff that, like, some days feels like it's neither here nor there. Like, he could have just drank the wine. He could have just eaten the food. It's not like that big a deal in the big scheme of things, right? But I guess the case that if you can't keep your integrity in something as small as turning down a meal, what makes you think you could keep your integrity in, in the face of something bigger? So there's actually something important about having in ourselves some resolve, a, a line in the sand. came across this quote by this, a Chinese philosopher, Mencius, this week, and it, he, he just says, before a man can do things, there must be things he will not do. It's kind of old Chinese proverb. And I think there's something in it to say that there's something big in having the simple ability to kind of know within yourself what you are not willing to do. What's the line you won't cross? I don't think we we live in a culture that has a really high value on personal integrity. We've got a a high value on on not engaging in behaviours that hurt other people. But we don't have a high value as a culture on holding fast to personal internal commitments. The ability to say no to doing what you know is wrong in the face of pressure, particularly around the things that just don't seem to have much in the way of consequences for other people. But the ability to say no is, is like a muscle. Um, it might surprise you, but I've not had much experience with bodybuilding. Um, and so if, if I tried to like bench press my weight tomorrow, I, what would happen is my arms would pop out of their sockets. Um, if I wanted to be able to do that, the, the, the path forward would be kind of slow and steady, starting small, building up. I think there is something in, in, in practicing having integrity in the small things in life. T- to be able to say, no, I won't do that. To be able to say, no, I won't take that drink beyond what I know is appropriate for me to stay in control of my mind and my body and my words. To say, no, I'm not going to neglect to be generous with my money, even though people, no one else can see my bank account. No, I will not cheat on my tax return, even though it doesn't hurt anyone around me immediately. No, I won't engage in sexual activity with anyone other than my spouse. and you know, That includes being alone with your phone or computer. No, I will not pretend I'm not a Christian. Nor I will not hide my faith when there's an opportunity to share it, but not sharing it just is neither here nor there. No, I won't gossip and talk bad about others, even if only one person will hear it. No, I won't sacrifice a Sabbath or, or time in community or, or time alone each day for some measly substitute. Everything I just said in that list, whether or not you do or don't do them, no one in this room would know. Like this week, I have no idea what your weeks look like. You don't know what each other's weeks look like in those areas. Most of those things are small, and they're really between you and God. And there is pressure to do them. Um, there is pressure. There is pressure to give in. There is pressure to go against what we know to be right. 
We want to be people who can imitate Daniel, who can actually seek and resolve and have some, some strength to resist the pressure of our culture. Now, Daniel's story here ends with, with being accepted in the king's service in a position of influence, which creates scope for, for much more difficult tests in the weeks to come, um, which we'll be looking at as we go through this. But as we, as we kind of start off our time in the book of Daniel, I want to finish just by saying one thing. As we look at stories like this and, and in the weeks to come, again and again and again, we're going to be seeing this, this picture of faithfulness in Daniel and in, in the others, that we should seek to imitate. Um, you know, we want to go out and live a life that in some way resembles Daniel's each and every week. A series of kind of morals and lessons. But if that is all we get out of this book, I think we're missing something really important. We'd actually be kind of left poor off for, for, if we miss this. Because there is a reality that in the week that just passed, you compromised, and so did I. And in the week that's coming, you will compromise and so will I. Let's try not to. We want to be a faithful people. But at the end of the day, sometimes Babylon wins and we lose. And we are shown to be people who are weak and faithless. And if that's just the story, that's kind of leaves you just feeling a bit guilty. That just doesn't like, leave you feeling a whole <laughs> very great. And so if we read the book of Daniel just saying, like, we need to be Daniel, we're missing something. The book of Daniel has another purpose, and that is to point us to a greater Daniel. You're not Daniel. You won't be Daniel. Don't, try to, don't feel bad if you're not. But Daniel points us to one who came after him. 500 years later, Jesus, like Daniel, lived under the oppression of a foreign rule. And like Daniel, Jesus' story begins with a series of temptations where he's offered comfort, power, influence, if he would just bend his knee to another. He goes out of Jerusalem. He spends 40 days hungry in the wilderness. And the devil gives him a series of invitations, which ends with this. It says you know, in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 4, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. We see in Jesus someone very different to you and me. Someone who is like Daniel, but I'd say even greater. Jesus has offered everything if he would just bow his knee. And where you and I fail and will fail this week, Jesus didn't. He holds fast. He is the picture of faithfulness. He is the only one who has lived out an entire life completely rooted in his identity at worshipping his Father without compromise. And he did this on behalf of people like you and me that in him we might be saved, that in him we might know that we, even though we fail, we have a king who loves us and who died for us and who stands for us. And so as we go through this book over seven weeks, again and again, my hope is that we'll be pointed to Jesus. We'll be encouraged to live a life that is hard to live, but we will be pointed to Jesus because it's only in him that we have hope. It's only in him that we have life. So let's pray uh, in response to this. Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we just pray as we embark in this story through the book of Daniel, as we consider what it is to imitate him in Babylon, we, we pray that we would be people who are aware of the way we're living, that we wouldn't be naive to the pressure around us, but that we would be people that can grow in our ability to hold fast and be faithful. We would know for ourselves what are the things that we need to say no to, 
if we would know for ourselves um, where, we, where we need to draw the line in the sand, that, that, would, be, that would mean that we can be people who aren't just feeling that, that, that tension and that tear every day, that we wouldn't be people who are living a double life, but we would be people who are wholeheartedly following you. And Lord, it's in the midst of failure, we just pray we wouldn't despair. Um, we wouldn't be overridden with guilt or shame because we know that in you there is no guilt, there is no condemnation, there is no shame because you are one who passed the test. You are one who is, who is, who is, who is perfect and who has shown that. So Lord, just keep growing us as a people as we do this together as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.